Does it disturb you, Matt, that in the case decision that came out yesterday, it was reported that the ICE officer that improperly detained Ms. Morales in the same year that he did that, that over half of the detainers that uh, he issued that year had to be withdrawn as erroneous. Does that bother you that ICE is getting it wrong uh, so often that people are spending an extra two days in jail, and even in a good case scenario, for people are denied bail, they can sit in jail for months. We've had clients in that situation who would have otherwise been released. Does that bug you, being a former um, enforcement official? We don't know what the detainers were withdrawn for, and without taking a look at the specific ones, there could have been any number of problems, or it could have simply been the pressure that gets put on the local authorities when they don't want to comply with these because of the political issue that this has been made into. But the fact is that the immigration laws exist, people violate them, and they are subject to legal penalties for doing so. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites. And I also host another Legal Talk Network show called Law Technology Now, along with Monica Bay. My co-host on this show, Jay Craig Williams, is not able to be with us today, so uh, I will be uh, going it alone. Before we introduce today's topic, I would like to just take a moment to thank our sponsors. First off, I'd like to thank Clio. Clio is the world's leading cloud-based legal practice management software. Thousands of lawyers and legal professionals trust Clio to help grow and simplify their practices. Learn more at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. And uh, also a fairly new sponsor to our show, Latera. Latera is the authority on document creation, collaboration, and control. Increase your productivity, collaborate securely, and ensure protection of your vital information. Learn more at www.latera.com, and that's L-I-T-E-R-A. Well, whatever you think of uh, President Donald Trump, one thing is for sure, his timing is impeccable. We've been planning for uh, some time to record a show today on sanctuary cities, and just uh, hours before we turned on the mics here, he signed executive order basically cracking down on sanctuary cities, threatening to withhold federal funds from sanctuary cities. Of course, uh, even before this, the sanctuary cities have been uh, very much uh, in the news of late. Uh, in July of 2015, a woman, Catherine Steinle, was walking on Pier 14 in San Francisco with her father when a man allegedly fired four shots, striking her in the back, and she later died from those shots. It was uh, found out later that the uh, alleged shooter was an undocumented immigrant from Mexico who had previously been deported on five different occasions and sparking quite a bit of controversy over San Francisco's uh, policies as a sanctuary city. And uh, just recently in the news, uh, Texas Governor uh, Abbott had threatened to cut funding to Travis County, 
over sanctuary city policies there. So what are sanctuary cities? What are some of the legal issues surrounding them? And uh, perhaps we'll be able to talk a little bit about uh, President Trump's executive order just signed today as well. So uh, to help us do that today, uh, let me introduce the two guests we have on the program. First of all, let me introduce Matthew J. O'Brien. Matthew is Director of Research at the Federation for American Immigration Reform, also known as FAIR. Matt joined FAIR in 2016 and is responsible for managing FAIR's research activities. Over the past 20 years, he's held a wide variety of positions focusing on immigration issues, both in government and in the private sector. Uh, Immediately prior to joining FAIR, Matt served as the chief of the National Security Division within the Fraud Detection and National Security Directorate at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, where he was responsible for formulating and implementing procedures to protect the legal immigration system from terrorists, foreign intelligence operatives, and other national threats. Welcome to uh, Lawyer to Lawyer, Matt O'Brien. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for being here. And let me also introduce uh, Jonathan Blazer. Jonathan is the American Civil Liberty Union's Advocacy and Policy Council. As the ACLU's Advocacy and Policy Council, John tracks developments in state and local measures concerning immigrants, as well as uh, police practices, and supports the legislative advocacy efforts of ACLU staff across the country. For seven years prior to joining ACLU, John worked with the National Immigration Law Center as a policy attorney and project manager and national coordinator of the American Friends Service Committee's Immigrant Rights Initiative. He's also worked for six years as a legal services attorney in Philadelphia, where he specialized in public benefits law and founded the Language Access Project of Community Legal Services there. He's based in San Francisco, works for ACLU's National Political Advocacy Department. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, John Blazer. Thank you. Thanks for having me. John, let me uh, start with you and ask if, can you give us a definition? What are we talking about when we're talking about sanctuary cities? Unclear. I mean, which is one of the difficult things about this debate and following along. Sanctuary cities is an undefined term that could mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. And unfortunately, I don't think that President Trump added a lot of clarity to the debate with his executive order today. Um, I would say that as the media has covered um, the term and has some local communities have embraced uh, the term and not all do, it's generally taken to mean states and localities that have in one respect or another decided to steer clear of entangling their own resources and personnel in the federal deportation process. Now, there are a variety of policies and practices by which localities can decide not to expand their own local resources on immigration uh, enforcement. One of the policies that has gotten the most attention in recent years and is specifically mentioned in Donald Trump's new executive order is whether or not the locality will hold individuals beyond their ordinary release for federal immigration enforcement purposes when the locality is requested to do so by Immigration and Customs Enforcement through a piece of paper called an ICE detainer request. There has been a flood of litigation in recent years over the constitutionality of ICE's practices in requesting that individuals be arrested and held for 
up to two days uh, while they investigate their immigration status. And as a result of that litigation, uh, courts around the country have held that localities may be liable for violating individuals' constitutional rights under the Fourth Amendment when they hold individuals without the Fourth Amendment's requirements and protections being met, most importantly, uh, that there's probable cause to hold the individual, that the individual has committed a crime or is in fact a deportable immigrant. And the fact is that ICE makes a lot of mistakes and localities have been uh, found responsible for needing to pay costs for damages when ICE gets it wrong and when they don't do their due diligence to make sure that they're not holding an individual unconstitutionally beyond their ordinary release. There's a variety of other practices beyond detainers that have been thrown into the mix and at a certain level it gets absurd. There have been certain anti-immigration groups that have even referred to mayors or city council members who make welcoming comments towards immigrants and refugees saying that uh, we want to live in an inclusive community in which everyone's treated equally and which newcomers feel welcome. Those kinds of places have wound up on anti-immigrant organizations tracking lists just for merely saying that they want to be hospitable uh, to immigrants. And then there's a whole bunch of other policies uh, in between. I would say the longest standing one of those uh, and the one that is going to face the fiercest pushback uh, from local law enforcement officials in defending it is that it has become just common good sense policing over the past 20 years reflected in many police departments, uh, operational manuals to not ask individuals unnecessary and irrelevant questions about their immigration status when they're investigating crimes. It is just basic common sense to police leadership that if you want immigrants to come forward as victims uh, of crimes or as witnesses to crimes that occur and you want to prevent and solve crimes, that immigrants need to know that you aren't working in cahoots uh, with the deportation process and that they can come forward and know that a law enforcement officer protects them equally. Matt O'Brien, do you agree with uh, Jonathan that it's difficult to define exactly what we're talking about here when we uh, talk about sanctuary cities? Uh, no, I don't. I think that while there is no legal definition of a sanctuary city, it's pretty clear that what sanctuary cities are saying is we're going to selectively determine which of the federal laws we wish to obey or not obey. And it's really a rule of law issue. The federal government has the authority to arrest people for immigration violations. It has the authority to enforce immigration law. And there's absolutely no reason why municipalities, states, uh, county jurisdictions should be free to say, well, we're selectively going to decline to be involved in any kind of immigration law activities. You know, when you look at other types of law enforcement, criminal law enforcement, particularly in the drug arena, there are task forces and all kinds of other entities which operate across state and local levels that are involved in enforcement. So the whole argument that this is, you know, somehow something that is really interpreted in different ways by different cities is, uh, is not forthright. What it is, is it is a deliberate attempt by cities to say, hey, we don't like the immigration laws, therefore we're not going to enforce them. Well, one of the things I've heard, I'm, I'm in Massachusetts, and Matt, I know you said you're originally from Massachusetts. Uh, there are a number of sanctuary cities in, in Massachusetts, and one of the things I hear locally is the, the argument that why should local law enforcement time and, and effort and even funds be put toward enforcing federal immigration law? That, that, that's not our job, is what I've heard some say. What do you say to that? Well, two things. First of all, I think most of the sanctuary city movement their real issue is not their funds and 
questions of, of federal versus local jurisdiction. It's that, that on principle, they don't agree with the immigration laws. So they're choosing to violate federal law. And if you look at other situations where federal laws apply, if you were looking at federal laws that had to do with, say, schools or discrimination and the federal government wasn't complying with those laws, then the local governments would file lawsuits and engage in all kinds of activities to contest that. The other point that I would make is there isn't a whole lot of local expenditure that needs to be made. This is really an issue of cooperation with federal authorities. No one is asking to turn the LA Police Department into an arm of ICE. ICE has a large number of employees. I was a trial attorney with ICE. And uh, you know they're more than adequate to go out and enforce the immigration laws. What it's really about is having law enforcement cooperate. And this is something that local law enforcement wants from the federal government when it comes to drug enforcement, wildlife enforcement, all kinds of other issues. But for some reason, it's uh, you know been claimed that when it comes to immigration, that this is not a good expenditure of resources. And I, you know, I spent a significant portion of my career in law enforcement and grew up in a family full of police officers. And I've never heard an actual cop, as opposed to a politician in a uniform, say that somehow law enforcement benefits from not enforcing immigration laws. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. And when I was working for ICE, I regularly got calls from local police officers saying, listen, we need help. We have people that are here that are in gangs, they're illegal alien criminals. We have people that are violating their immigration status through the crimes that they're committing. Can you please come and pick these people up? Jonathan, in the uh, one of the scenarios that you talked about a few moments ago was the detainer request, which if, if I'm understanding it correctly, this, this comes up in the context of somebody has been arrested on some kind of a, a criminal charge and is being released uh, after going through the initial uh, legal process and that essentially uh, ICE is asking that that person be held an additional amount of time so that they can check them out and, and maybe even get the personnel together to come get that person. Is that the scenario that, that this comes up in? And what are the constitutional issues around that? Right. Uh, what you described is correct. I think it's important to note that once the ordinary criminal process has occurred could mean something as minimal as a person being arrested for driving without a license and being taken down to the jail and being booked and then as would occur with anybody else in that situation, immediately released. Uh, so the situation does occur with respect to individuals who have finished a sentence in jail and have served their time, but it also occurs you know, fairly commonly in situations where individuals would be processed very quickly and uh, down at the police department have their fingerprints taken to make sure that they are who they say they are and they don't have other outstanding warrants and then would be quickly released or uh, in situations in which individuals have uh, proven to a judge that they're not a flight risk and that they're not a threat to public safety and they're eligible for release on bond. Those are the situations in which a detainer is applied or is attempted to be applied by ICE. And the fundamental legal issue uh, there, Bob, um, is really the Fourth Amendment. We don't, as a country, arrest people and deprive them of their liberty unless there is probable cause that that person has committed offense. I mean, that's a hallmark of our Constitution, and it is something that applies to all people in the United States. But even if you believe that what you really cared about is that it applied to citizens, 
It is in place in part because ICE doesn't know. Uh, the good reason why it applies to uh, all people is because ICE doesn't know a lot of times who's a citizen and who's not. And they have issued hundreds of erroneous detainer requests on U.S. citizens. We just got a ruling yesterday on a case that has been going on uh, for years out of Rhode Island. The named plaintiff that we represent is Ada Morales. And as the judge noted in this uh, decision, you know, he said that the facts of the case are disturbing on many levels. The fact that a United States citizen was held in prison on an erroneous immigration detainer without probable cause for even one night should concern all Americans and that the 24-hour illegal detention revealed a dysfunction of constitutional proportion at both the state and federal level and a unilateral refusal to take responsibility for the fact that a United States citizen lost her liberty due to a baseless immigration detainer through no fault of her own. And uh, this kind of stuff has been going on for years and in recent years has been litigated um, across the country. And I think, quite frankly, it's cavalier for... Matt, to say that these things don't really cost law enforcement much of anything. I mean, the litigation has imposed one cost when people's constitutional rights are damaged, but more fundamentally, beyond those cases that are brought before courts, every study that's been done around the country um, in a diversity of localities have shown that when you multiply these ICE detainer requests uh, in some localities by the dozens, in some places by the hundreds, and in many places by the thousands per year, and you're asking localities to hold individuals uh, for an additional 48 hours while ICE investigates their status and decides whether they want to come and pick them up, those costs have been found to be in places like Miami and the millions uh, in a place like California at the state level and the tens of millions of dollars uh, a year, this is not uh, nothing. But I think that what has really driven sheriffs and law enforcement officials across the country in opposing blindly accepting ICE detainer practices hasn't even so much been the cost, but their oath of uh, office to uphold the Constitution. And that's why when Matt says what's at issue is the rule of law, we can all agree on that. And the rule of law um, that sheriffs are standing up for and that we've been standing up for on this issue is the Constitution. The Fourth Amendment, which protects us all uh, against unreasonable search and seizure and from being arrested and locked away uh, without cause. And the Tenth Amendment, which gets to the other issue of whether or not localities are, in fact, following uh, the law or not. Um, The Tenth Amendment to the United States limits the federal government's ability to mandate that states take a particular action, including in the area of federal immigration law enforcement and investigations, in order to enforce a federal statutory or regulatory scheme. And it's just real plain and simple that states have and localities have every right to decide not to invest their own resources and their own participation in enforcing federal immigration laws. This is not a controversial legal proposition. It's pretty basic stuff. And the campaign that has been undertaken by anti-immigration forces and Donald Trump to try and paint these localities as violating the law is either extremely um, misleading or extremely misinformed. Matt, I'm going to give you a chance to respond to all of that in just a moment, but I need to take a short break here. So uh, listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments to talk more about uh, sanctuary cities. 
Clio is an invaluable software solution for law firms of all sizes, handling all the demands of your growing practice from a single cloud-based platform. Clio enhances your firm with features such as matter and document management, time tracking, and even billing. Clio is an effortless tool that helps lawyers focus on what they do best practice law. Learn more at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Documents are the currency of business. They represent you in every business interaction. Executives need to know what changes have occurred in documents, what metadata risks exist, and how to encrypt, share, and collaborate securely. Vatera simplifies the document creation and collaboration process to protect you from risk and loss of reputation. Vatera offers better solutions for document lifecycle management so you can focus on doing what really matters www.latera.com Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, and uh, joining us today are our guests, Matt O'Brien, the Director of Research at the Federation for American Immigration Reform, and Jonathan Blazer, the ACLU's Advocacy and Policy Council. And on the day that we are recording this, and I realize this show will be posted a little bit later, but on the day that we are recording this, uh, uh, President Trump has just signed an executive order with regard to uh, sanctuary cities. Matt O'Brien, let me ask you, have you had a chance to uh, – well, first of all, I guess, Matt, I, I did get, I'll promise you an opportunity to respond uh, to, the, to the last point, uh, and uh, maybe I should uh, ask you if you want to do that first. Do you want to respond on the issue of the, the constitutionality of this issue and, and the cost issue that was just discussed? Sure. Yeah, I'd like to respond to both of those. Well, I think, first off, to imply that this has been thoroughly litigated throughout the United States and it's a settled issue is just disingenuous. Uh, a number of the, the holdings that have come out of courts on this have been holdings with limited import out of federal district courts. And it remains to be seen whether they're going to survive appellate review. And I think that there have been a lot of instances of judges legislating from the bench and imposing requirements that just simply don't apply to immigration. Immigration law is civil in the main, and unless you're being charged with a criminal violation of the Immigration and Nationality Act, you're subject to the civil authority of the United States. Now, 8 U.S.C. 1357 is pretty explicit that immigration officers are empowered to interrogate anybody they believe to be unlawfully present in the United States or not to have a right to remain in the United States. And the same statute also says that if an immigration officer has reason to believe that an alien is in the United States in violation of law or regulation is likely to escape before a warrant can be obtained for his arrest, that it can make a warrantless arrest. And that's just one aspect of a pretty broad warrantless arrest power. As far as probable cause goes, it's not a civil standard, it's a criminal standard. So while the Fourth Amendment does in fact prohibit unreasonable searches and seizures, the Supreme Court of the United States has consistently found that border searches and immigration-related searches are in fact reasonable searches. So the situation with Ms. Morales is unfortunate, but we're a big country with 350 million people, and occasionally you're going to have things that happen that are not legally correct. That's why we have a legal system, and the proof that the system works is that she won her case and prevailed. But the fact is to say that ICE issues hundreds of erroneous detainers is just silly because the purpose of the detainer is 
ICE gets information from a local law enforcement agency saying, hey, we believe somebody is unlawfully present in the United States, or there's a record entered into a law enforcement system and ICE gets a hit indicating that a person that they believe is an illegal alien or a person who has violated their status by committing a crime is in the custody of a state or local agency. And they ask that the person be held so that they can actually determine what the person's immigration status is and what other legal issues that may arise in the context of the person's immigration status. Are they an aggravated felon? You know, all of those sorts of things. And then people aren't simply scooped up and removed without any further hearing. They get due process in an immigration court, which is virtually unique in the United States that we do this. Most other countries in the world don't. They leave it to executive branch agencies who simply administratively deport people. So the aspect of this that is troubling is that the forces in favor of sanctuary cities are saying, hey, it's okay to disobey federal law. And oh, by the way, we're going to start adding a whole lot of requirements to immigration law that simply don't apply. And as far as the Tenth Amendment goes, the Tenth Amendment requirement says that the states can't be deputized and required to enforce federal law. They can be asked to do so. So I don't think that in any way prohibits cooperation between state and local authorities in the immigration context, nor does it make it inappropriate for local authorities that do wish to cooperate in immigration enforcement to do so. And, you know, as far as the cost issue, the the fact is that there is a huge cost that is involved with crime and illegal immigration. FAIR estimates it at being $113 billion a year, which is mainly borne by states and local authorities. So, that's, that's, you know, a non, claim, that's a nonsense. That's a nonsense number, um, and it's been debunked uh, by several other sources. I mean, it's well, just I don't know a that it's complete and total. It's a complete and total fabrication. Well, I mean, uh, but I, I think, think it's a complete total fabrication to say that this is straining the budgets of law enforcement agencies, and these are the very same law enforcement agencies that take grant money from the federal government in the form of homeland security and other grants. So, I mean. This is a foolish argument, even with thousands of detainers being issued, which well, I, I don't know that ICE ever reached a massive number. This is part of law enforcement activities. It, it, it's what agencies do. And in a lot of cases, they're reimbursed for their expenses by the federal government. So these are just spurious arguments. They're, they're, they're reimbursed the pennies on the pennies on the dollar. I think it's clear. Speaking of grant money from the federal government, as I understand, I have not seen uh, the order signed today. I, I take it, Jonathan, from your comments earlier that you have seen it, uh, and I, as I understand it, at least part of it, it threatens to withhold uh, federal funds from uh, sanctuary cities. So let me ask, Jonathan, have you seen the order, and what are the concerns uh, you have with it, assuming you have some? Yeah, no, I've seen the order, and um, I assume, Matt, that you have also? Yes. Um so I think it um, obfuscates the issue, you know, even further. I mean, it's not – we were actually, you know, expecting the possibility that there would be a cleaner order focusing on a particular legal mandate. Or Matt keeps talking about violating federal law. But again, like, we, we can get back to it. There's no federal law that actually obliges localities to hold individuals on detainers. They're on their face uh, voluntary requests, and each court that has looked at it has said – that they are in fact voluntary and nothing obliges a locality to, to enlist their resources to enforce them and hold individuals. Um, that's been the whole reason why localities have been held uh, liable uh, around the country. But what the order says, which is interesting, is it cites one particular uh, federal law. It's the only law cited in here, which is a federal law that was 
enacted in 1996. It's sometimes referred to as the federal anti-sanctuary law. Um, and that's really been the only law in the books that anyone can point to. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the predominant practices that localities that provide equal policing services and protective policies are actually carrying forth. What that federal law says is that localities can't enact a policy or practice that limits or restricts the sharing of information between that locality and federal immigration enforcement authorities about the immigration or citizenship status of an individual. And many of these localities who have established these policies have painstakingly ensured that in their policies, they make clear that nothing in the policy is intended to restrict information sharing about a person's citizenship or immigration status. And the policies themselves have been carefully crafted to respect that one federal law in the book, even though there's some arguments that that federal law itself um, might violate the 10th Amendment that hasn't really been tested out. So I'd, I'd like to hear Matt's interpretation of how a policy limiting holding an individual beyond their release date on the basis of an ICE detainer request or how a policy that uh, LAPAD has had in effect since the late 80s of avoiding questioning immigrants who are victims and witnesses um, to crimes around their immigration status actually violates that law. I think it's telling that the um, executive order <laughs> cites 8 U.S.C. 1373, again, the only thing anybody can cite and one that doesn't really apply to these issues uh, under debate now, and then says, or, so that he's directing the Secretary of Homeland Security and his Attorney General to do a review of uh, any policies that are in violation of this one federal law and to recommend funding penalties and to actually go ahead and sue those localities also to enjoin them from continuing those practices. He cites that federal law, and then he also says, or, which has in effect a statute policy or practice that prevents or hinders the enforcement of federal law. This really flips it completely on its head. It is not localities or states' obligation to assist in the enforcement of federal law. This is the piece of it that is just perfectly clear from the intent of the Tenth Amendment and all the jurisprudence over it. interpretation of federalism. I mean, we live in a federal democratic republic, and collaborative federalism has been the model for the history of the republic. So, I mean, it's disingenuous to suggest that uh, localities are being held liable for this. What's happened is several courts have suggested that there might be liability, but to the best of my knowledge, no one's ever won a suit saying that ICE held them without uh, appropriate authority uh, if they weren't a U.S. citizen. So not that, true. That's a little not bit true. The, the case that sparked the detainer revolt in 2014 uh, out of Clackamas County, Oregon, involved an undocumented uh, immigrant uh, who was held. The Fourth Amendment applies. And the recent case out of Texas, the Mercado case, also involved plaintiffs who are undocumented immigrants. What federal law is it can you point to that localities are violating when they choose not to hold individuals beyond their release date on the base of an ICE detainer request? What is it? Well, there's the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act and the provisions of IRA-IRA that essentially say that you can't interfere with federal officials 
uh, nope. in terms of the information exchange that's required for them to do their jobs. So I already pointed to 8 U.S.C. 1357, which actually authorizes federal officials to engage in this. So the question is... Federal, federal when, officials are, are authorized to try, but what obliges localities to hold individuals in their jails on the basis of an ICE detainer request? 1373, which was an IRA-IRA in 1996 and in different forms, says that you can't impede the flow of information. How is not holding somebody on a detainer when ICE has informed you that they wish you to do so impeding the flow of information? Uh, I'm not understanding. See, this is what happens is this is typically flipped. And the question is, really, when there is a specific statute authorizing the immigration authorities to arrest people for violations of immigration law, where is the problem with state and local authorities cooperating? Because that's how the, law enforcement the statute, works. The statute authorizes them to arrest them with a warrant unless, under limited circumstances, they have made the determination that it is impossible to issue a warrant due to exigency. And there was just a huge class action case with the decision that came down Moreno v. Napolitano out of the Northern District of Illinois that effectively invalidated all detainers in effect uh, in that entire district because it found that ICE had completely ignored the statutory requirement to determine whether or not a person is likely to escape before a warrant can be obtained. And instead, just we're sending people out these pieces of paper, a piece of paper called detainers, and seeing whether or not they could get localities to imprison individuals on the basis of those papers without a warrant. Well, I think that's a bit of an oversimplification. Well, Matt, let me just ask you, is the, do you see this as a matter of cooperation or do you see this as a matter of legal obligation on the part of local authorities? In other words, is it is it that you believe that local authorities should voluntarily want to cooperate or that there is some legal obligation that's imposed on them that mandates them to cooperate? Well, I see it as both. I mean, I, I believe that it's a, a direct and deliberate interference with a federal official who's going about their assigned duties. There doesn't seem to me to be any reason other than the Fourth Amendment claims, which I think are utterly spurious. They're all based on a, a probable cause requirement, which doesn't apply anywhere else for a civil arrest or for enforcement of not true. Not, not true. There's the case law. There's plenty of case law about the probable causes applicability in civil cases. It's all over these decisions. Well, it's let's, all over let's, these let's decisions. Let's not Once again, we have a bunch of district court opinions from a bunch of judges who seem to be inserting dozens. things that don't have anything to do with immigration enforcement. And you have clear statutory authority enabling the federal government to do this. So I, what mystifies any of us that work on this side of the issue is when the federal government says, hey, listen, we have the authority to arrest someone. Please hold them until we can come get them. How is that problematic? Do you think the president got it right with this executive order, Matt? Are you pleased with this? Do you think he should have gone farther? What's your take on this? Uh, no, we're very pleased with it. We think he got it right, and we think that the threats that he's going to withdraw federal funding is a legitimate exercise of the presidential empowerment power. And I think that this will all be clarified and vindicated when the inevitable litigation comes up on this, because I think the Trump administration is going to prevail. I mean, you simply can't just pick and choose what laws you wish to enforce, and then you can't selectively apply legal requirements. I mean, they either apply or they don't. And in this situation, you're talking about something that since the current Immigration Act was put into force in the 1920s, it's been a settled issue that it is not a criminal procedure and that the criminal procedural protections do not apply. 
And most of the time, the actions that are taken, the reason that ICE started the detainers was to meet the reasonable cause requirements that are set forth in the Immigration and Nationality Act by documenting why they were asking that someone be held and what they were attempting to do. And the statutes are pretty clear that ICE has the authority to try and determine what someone's immigration status is. Here, the states and and cities that are participating in this foolishness are basically saying, well, we don't want you to look into this because you might find out that the person is subject to removal and remove them. I mean, that seems to me to be states and localities directly undermining federal legal authority. It doesn't promote the rule of law, and there's absolutely no evidence of any sort that this somehow improves policing. Well... Police chiefs across the country disagree with you. The major cities, chiefs of police association disagree. About that. The National Sheriff's policy. Association has been actually working directly with us, and they agree with the, us on this. The, and the, the sheriffs National are more Sheriff's often Association the people who are the bills in Congress that would have penalized them. I think the National Sheriff's Association would like it if ICE goes and gets a judicial warrant, and therefore they know that uh, they're holding somebody under due process of law. See, and this is not the problem. Liable, is ICE is not required by any of the statutes to get a judicial warrant. It's a civil procedure. So the warrants for arrest under the INA issue from ICE itself. And the fact is that if ICE actually went into a court and applied for a warrant, there's no legal basis for the court to grant that unless it's for a criminal arrest pursuant to a violation of the Immigration and Nationality Act. When it is an immigration violation, it's a civil procedure and there's no judicial warrant requirement whatsoever. Immigration courts could issue such warrants. They make uh, probable cause determinations about removability all the time, every day. It's no, actually, they don't. Immigration and, courts and are specifically prohibited from considering any kind of constitutional issues. There's precedent on that. And they wouldn't have any authority to issue an immigration warrant because statutorily they're not constituted to do that. Well, but why, maybe put, you should why expand, put that level maybe, of process into this when what we're talking about... To make sure people's about, rights are not violated and they're not imprisoned they're not imprisoned unreasonably and that what happens what has happened in these cases doesn't happen to other individuals in the case that came down we're yesterday about a select the small ICE officer of people the, who were, no, we're not who the were ice officer without appropriate let me try and get you one at a time here just people? so that otherwise it, we can't hear on the tape so one at a time Sure. What about what about all the people who actually are unlawfully present in the United States and subject to removal proceedings? Where where ICE is the issue there? ICE has tools at its disposal to uh, do its job and to pick up those individuals. And localities with the policies that we're uh, describing are not standing in the way. They're just letting the federal government do its job. In the case that decision that came out yesterday, just to answer your well, claim. Well, they're deliberately obstructing um, the federal government in the course of not, attempting not, to not, do its job. Not, not, really. I think, not really. I think the problem I, with this is it's, it's a very disingenuous argument coming from the supporters of these policies. They simply don't think that anyone should be removed from the United States. So they focus on a very small number of people who have a, a yeah, procedural okay. recourse through the courts if they're improperly detained, and they're ignoring the large number of people that were successfully removed. I worked for five years in the institutional removal program with ICE, where the state of New York collaborates directly with, with the Department of Homeland Security to deport people who are in prison when their prison sentence comes up. So it, it, does it, does it disturb you then, Matt? Does it, dis- does it disturb you, Matt, that in the case decision that came out yesterday, it was reported that the ICE officer 
that uh, improperly detained Ms. Morales in the same year that he did that, that over half of the detainers that uh, he issued uh, that year had to be withdrawn as erroneous. Does that bother you that ICE is getting it wrong uh, so often that people are spending an extra two days in jail, and even in a good case scenario, for people are denied bail, they can sit in jail for months. We've had clients in that situation who would have otherwise been released. Does that bug you, being a former well, I think that's um, enforcement a official? as well, because we, we don't know what the detainers were withdrawn for. And without taking a look at the specific ones, there could have been any number of problems, or it could have simply been the pressure that gets put on the local authorities when they don't want to comply with these because of the political issue that this has been made into. But the fact is that the immigration laws exist, people violate them, and they are subject to legal penalties for doing so. If you don't like that, then try and get the legislation changed. We're going over our time here, and, and I need to, to cut this a little bit short. I did want to just ask, coming back to the uh, executive order that was signed, whether it does, one of the things we talked about at the opening of this show was this idea of, of defining uh, what a sanctuary city looks like. Does this executive order help us at all there? Does it provide any kind of a bright line of who this order is speaking to? No, but I think that's deliberate. I, I, I don't think the federal government wants to define what a sanctuary city is because it, it's a non-existent legal concept. And so then the federal government just snarls itself up in definitions that are irrelevant anyways. What this says is How does it know which cities it's going to withhold funds from if it can't define what constitutes a sanctuary city? I mean, how does it define the, the cities that are at risk of having federal funds withheld from them? Well, I think it was pretty clear about that. It says anyone that's involved in interfering with the enforcement of immigration laws or refusing to cooperate with immigration enforcement authorities. Whoa. Clearer than that. That, yeah, according to according to Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions, anyone who's interfering or refusing to cooperate or in any way prevents or hinders in, our, in their judgment, whoa. Well, I don't think it's in their judgment. I think it's a legal standard. There's no legal that, standard there. That is applied in the courts on a regular basis. I mean, there's, uh, you know, umpteen statutes and regulations that have to do with inappropriate interference with law enforcement authorities. And I think while this was couched in the terms of, of information, it defies imagination that people in a federalist system can somehow be portraying this as some kind of a bad activity. It's simply states and municipalities participating in the upholding of the federal law, which they do in a, in a myriad of other contexts. Well, no doubt we're going to see uh, a lot of litigation coming out of this, uh, I would assume, uh, and uh, going forward. But uh, unfortunately, we are nearing the end of our time here. And I do want to give each of you an opportunity to give your final thoughts and uh, also let our listeners know how they can follow up with you. So let me just uh, turn to Jonathan Blazer from the ACLU and uh, ask you uh, your final thoughts. Sure. I appreciate being invited on to uh, today's call. Looking at the order that President Trump just released, it's really clear. He can't force localities to enforce his mass deportation plans, and he can't legally carry out a threat to broadly defund cities and states that protect people's rights without regard to immigration status. Congress has never directed the president to defund states and localities that stay clear of the deportation business. And his recent executive order really cites no statutory authorization to do so in a way that applies to anything that's going on. More importantly, maybe if Congress did enact such a law, it would still likely be struck down as unconstitutional since it would effectively coerce and commandeer state and local governments to carry out federal policies 
in violation of the Tenth Amendment and the principles of federalism. He may hope that cities buckle under his threat, but the truth is that many cities and local law enforcement officials have been reaffirming their protective policies and preparing to defend them uh, with legal advice in hand. And if uh, listeners are interested, last week, New York's Attorney General issued very helpful guidance recounting the state of law in this area, addressing some of the core legal issues and recommending uh, model policies. I think that is one of many efforts that will contribute towards local law enforcement officials uh, drawing a line in the stand here and insisting that they and not Donald Trump know what policing is necessary uh, in order to protect the public safety of their communities. Thanks. And how can our listeners find more about your work or follow up with you if they want to do that? We have a lot of information on this and other civil liberties issues at www.aclu.org. Thank you very much, Jonathan. And Matt O'Brien, you get the final word today. Thank you. Uh, This is simply an effort to try and legislate away immigration laws from the bench. It still remains to be seen how a lot of these issues are going to be resolved, and FAIR thinks that this executive order was a significant step forward. It's an exercise of the president's empowerment power. That power has been upheld in numerous circumstances. Probably the best example was the way that the government went about implementing the 55-mile-per-hour speed limit. And it's an interesting area of law because there's actually very little case law on it because the cases are pretty quickly resolved in favor of the presidential exercise of the power. So there's certainly a legitimate debate about what type of immigration policies that the United States should have and how those should be implemented. But in a federal system like we have, it's just inappropriate to say that we should attack the immigration laws you know, by lawsuits that encourage judges to legislate from the bench. That's not an appropriate way to deal with the situation. And all it's done is it's created a mess and it's diminished national security. And the fact is people are subject to removal if they unlawfully enter the country or if they commit crimes while they're present in the United States. Those are legitimate laws that have been on the books. And the biggest problem that we've had is we haven't been enforcing the authorities that actually exist in a way that defends the interests and protects the national security of the country. And FAIR has a significant amount of information on this on their website, which is www.fairus.org. And we also have a blog, which is www.immigrationreform.com. And there are a number of different pieces uh, on a blog there that address these issues on a daily basis. And I have an author page there if anyone wants to read about uh, what I've written in the past about all of these issues. Thank you very much. Well, we've been speaking today with Jonathan Blazer, the Advocacy and Policy Council at the American Civil Liberties Union, and Matthew O'Brien, the Director of Research at the Federation for American Immigration Reform. Thank you both for taking the time to be with us and for your uh, thoughtful and uh, informed comments on this issue. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. And that brings us to the end of another show. This is Bob Ambrogi uh, on behalf of uh, J. Craig Williams and uh, everybody at the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic when you want legal. Think lawyer, lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. 
subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The only question is, are, are we still going to exchange protein shake recipes? That's what I want to know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to send Matt mine. Um, Fantastic. Absolutely. I appreciate it. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.